After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Here we are, David Silver and myself, Raghu Marcus, and we have a special guest today, somebody I only met uh, a little bit ago, and David has only met moments ago, Baba Ram. And he has a story that uh, I could only say is exceptional, and I'm sure, David, you can come up with more bigger English ag- adjectives. Well, I mean, it is an amazing story, but the arc of it is what really interests me. I mean... It was just, it's just an amazing, transformative tale, the like of which I think is quite rare. I mean, you read a lot of books about yoga and enlightenment and inner vision and balance, but you rarely read a book about what happened before that and what brought that about. Mm. And uh, because of that, the book is, is totally compelling. Totally. So welcome. Well, thank you both uh, very much. Those are, are very kind words. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you just got to launch right in. Uh, you know, we usually, actually, with everybody who comes aboard and hangs with us for 45 minutes or an hour, whatever it is, we, we go through, okay, when you were growing up, what were the stressors that uh, helped to lead you to transformation, to realize you could be happy, and so on and so forth? As David and I have done uh, in our earliest uh, podcast, but uh, you have uh, published a book that uh, explicitly spells out just that and what it took, and and uh, and it was uh, it included a tremendous amount of suffering. And and David and I always talk about suffering when, in terms of waking up, it, there's various levels of suffering that wakes people up. You got handed a, a big, big barnful, it seems like. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, everybody, it's all suffering is suffering. And even the smallest thing can be, you know, devastating to one person, and a large thing can be handled by another person. So one can't say you know, discriminate uh, as far as suffering is, is concerned. So, but just. <clears throat> Tell us the story. Obviously, it's a it's a large book. We can't go into it in that kind of detail. But just start out with who you were as a, a young man coming up, and and your hopes and desires and all of that. Well, thank you very much, Raku. It took a lot to wake me up. Uh, I I came of age in the 1960s, and I was deeply impacted by the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, the the women's movement, and I felt very disenfranchised during that time in my life. It was uh, 
challenging for me. I felt a lot of anger and a lot of frustration and a lot of alienation. And I didn't really know how to channel that. So I think I channeled it in a lot of the wrong ways that many of us did in the 1960s. But then after graduating college, by sheer happenstance, I ended up with this job at a little television station in Northern California, up in Humboldt County. And suddenly, I had a voice. I was a journalist. I had an audience. And so I could change all of that frustration I felt about the injustice in the world to something that I could have an impact on. So I immediately focused on political corruption, white-collar crime, environmental degradation, and I could see results. People went to prison for doing bad things. Policies changed. Legislation at the local level was passed. I had an identity, and it meant everything in the world to me. And through this journey of mine, I worked my way up to larger and larger television markets and network affiliates across the country, and ultimately was hired as a foreign correspondent by NBC Network News. And as a young man that had felt that earlier and who was from a very middle-class background, this was a bigger life than I ever dreamed was possible. And my complete identity was invested in this. And I carried that passion all the way to the network and what I did covering wars. I always felt myself drawn to the victims of, of war and to look at the, the fuzzy areas because we tend to try to make war black and white, good guy, bad guy. And we know when you're there in the throes of battle, it's not that simple. And there's a lot of hidden agendas. And I always wanted to bring that to light. But I had a dark secret for the last seven years of my career. I had been in Afghanistan in 1986 during the Soviet invasion. I was living with the Mujahideen up in the mountains. And I took a very rare vacation after that because I was type A and I worked like crazy. And I went down to the Bahamas to relax for a week on a very remote island. And a storm came up and I was battening down storm windows. This was the very last day. I thought, you know, a hurricane could be coming. And the very final one was high up on a ledge, and I balanced myself up there, and I twisted the handles, and they were corroded, and so type A twisted harder, and they broke, and I fell. And I slammed under the base of my spine, knocked all the wind out of myself, and was numb from the shock of it. But by the next morning, I knew I was in serious trouble. My back hurt. My back hurt so badly that... I couldn't see straight. But I got up and kept moving forward because I knew if I was on a rocket ship with my career and I knew that I would lose my seat if I stopped for a moment. And the only way I did this for seven years was painkillers, muscle relaxers, heavier drinking every night, praying that I'd get over the pain the next day and remembering the victims of war that I had seen and telling myself, Get over yourself. You know, remember the circumstances you have seen. But I never did get better. I went through the Persian Gulf War, drug wars in South America, chaos in Central America, apartheid in Africa, gritting my teeth, being in more pain every day. So I have two tra trajectories going, skyrocketing career, emotional and physical health plummeting. Mm. In 1993, after the Gulf War, I was in charge of all of Asia for NBC News, living in Hong Kong. 
And I was on assignment, and I leaned over to look at some videotape, and something snapped in my back, and I all but blacked out, screaming in pain. What I came to learn was that for seven years, I was working with a mildly broken back, that I had fractured my lowest vertebra during that time. And now I had a radically broken back. I was brought back to the United States for major back surgery, and it failed and I was declared permanently disabled. And suddenly, from a global life that made a difference that I had an identity, I was confined to a body brace from my thighs to my sternum. I could not sit up to eat a meal. Heavier drugs now. Uh, Vicodin, Valium, Ritalin, Prozac. And I went into an abyss of darkness because I had PTSD, not from what I had experienced in battle, but through completely losing my identity and feeling that there was no future for me whatsoever. So I became a master. (laughs) David and Raghu, I became a master of self-pity. And I became a master of anger and of fear and of depression. And I kept eating like uh, meat and potatoes foreign correspondent, but I'm laying on the couch all day getting drunk and stoned. And so I ballooned up in my physical weight. I gained about a thousand pounds of emotional toxins in my body. And uh, I was headed towards, you know, just a terrible, terrible fate. I spent four years this way, and then I had a little boy who was born, despite a marriage that was all but over and eventually would end. And I thought, well, I do have an identity. I'm a daddy, even if I can't you know, kick a soccer ball or carry him on my shoulders, I'm a daddy. And three months into this beautiful little life, I got sick and sicker and sicker, ultimately diagnosed with stage four cancer from depleted uranium years earlier in the Persian Gulf War, started in my throat, metastasized throughout my lymphatic system, and my doctor said, write your will. You're not going to live for two years. Here's morphine to go along with this arsenal that I had of medications already. So add the guilt that I'm leaving this beautiful child's life, and I plummeted to the bottom of that abyss over the next uh, year or so. He became my only soft spot. I pushed everyone out of my life. I was very difficult to be around. And he came to me just after his second birthday, just before the year 2000, and he finally got it. And there were tears in his eyes, and he looked at me, and he spoke three words that changed my whole life. Really my first mantra, get up, daddy. And brothers, it hit me in a place that I didn't know that I had. And that looped through my mind all through the dawning of 2000. Get up, Daddy. But how? I'm dying. Get up, Daddy. But how? I have a broken back and a failed surgery. Get up, Daddy. I finally decided the only thing I can do is die with dignity. Because when you are that dark and that drunk and that stoned, a part of you still knows how you're showing up and what you're doing, even though you do everything you can to suppress that part, to run away from that. And I knew at the soul level, this little boy deserves a father that leaves the world with some semblance of dignity, because I had none at this point in time. 
So I checked into a fine hospital here in Southern California where I was into rehab and I detoxed cold turkey after 14 years now of heavy medications. And let me tell you, there were dark Ouch. nights of the soul, writhing and sick out of every way possible, unspeakable things we don't even want to talk about on your podcast. <laughs> and I crawled out of there, dazed and confused, seven or eight days later, and the doctor said, we have an experimental east-west mind-body clinic ancient Eastern healing modalities, modern Western holistic techniques, can't help you with cancer, but maybe keep you off the drugs and alcohol. I couldn't even understand what they were saying. And I just grabbed it and said, I'm in. And that's when my life began to change. I'm in. The very first thing was biofeedback, where they hook you up to electrodes to take your skin temperature, heart rate, brain waves. And they played me a guided visualization by one of the founders of mind-body medicine in America, Dr. Emmett Miller, who wrote the foreword to my, my memoir, Warrior Pose, and now is a, a cherished colleague. And at the end of it, I think I was relaxed for the first time in my life. And I felt a different taste inside of my body. And I had my second awakening after Get Up Daddy. I knew I had a role to play in whatever healing was possible for me. A month or so into this journey, therapeutic yoga. I had never tried yoga. I was a jaded, cynical, investigative war correspondent who thought everything was hooey. And uh, I somehow walked into that little yoga room stiff and broken and unable to do anything. And it was the third epiphany, something inside of me, this voice of the soul that my little boy had connected me to said, this is it. And I knew. My ego said, this is a what? And I chose not to listen to my ego voice. I ordered the ancient texts and found out, boy, yoga is a lot more than, you know, doing yoga postures. That's just a, a beginning stage. It's a complete science, body, mind, spirit science of how to be a human being. And I started to embrace in my own way these ancient practices. As this center closed, because insurance companies wouldn't support it, the people there, the few I knew, their lives went into total chaos. I went home and built a yoga room. And I practiced and I practiced and I practiced. I became an organic vegan. I fasted for long periods of time. I took 80 pounds of, of what I think was cancerous goo off of my body in this process. And through yoga postures and deep breathing, I purified my body down to the cellular level. I twisted things out of all of my organs. I became balanced. And through visualization and meditation and affirmation, I took a thousand pounds of toxic goo off of my emotional body. And it took a lot of time. And there were a lot of times I wanted to give up. And I would just chant, get up, daddy. Because I was doing it for something larger than my individuated self. I was doing this for my boy and the love that I felt for him. And that helped me step out of my ego and see a bigger picture. In two years, I was completely out of back pain. And from a man who had always been stiff, even in the prime of my life, I could suddenly do full splits and 
put both legs behind my head, really? which was such an affirmation for a sick person. Mm. And I was cancer free and I knew it. I never even had to go back to a doctor. I knew it. I knew what cancer felt like and I knew what it was like to have it gone. And ever since then, I've devoted my life to sharing the message that no matter what we're facing, no matter how small or how large, it's still significant, but that we have the capacity to heal to our maximum potential. We have the capacity to turn our obstacles into opportunities, the capacity to find our authentic self on a deeper level and to move not only towards healing, but to move towards manifesting our fullest potential finding a new mission in life, which was important for me. My old identity was destroyed as a global foreign correspondent. Well, now I'm a journalist for the news of yoga. I'm a journalist for the news of self-healing and self-empowerment and personal growth because this science works. And it's absolutely remarkable. We were born with this power and this potential in reclaiming it is our birthright. Mm. Let's talk about identity and talk about what you talked about, uh, your identity as a correspondent and the kinds of uh, milieus that you found yourself in. Um, <clears throat> maybe even starting with, I remember the first time, I guess it was in Afghanistan. So you talk about your identity related to what you experienced and the kind of suffering, <clears throat> the deep, deep suffering that people were experiencing. Well, after being with the Mujahideen, which was very, very rugged up in the uh, freezing mountain snow in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains and down into the hot valleys where they did battle with the Soviet troops <clears throat> and seeing many of them killed along the way, I went down to the largest refugee crisis in the world at the time, the Afghan refugee crisis, 5 million of a nation of 15 million in these squalid camps on the border of Pakistan and uh, Iran. And the suffering there was beyond belief. Children, teenagers, women, men, elderly, many with arms and legs missing, faces filled with shrapnel, starving, completely detached their villages, which meant the world to them these very homogenous societies in these little villages destroyed, their culture destroyed. And in the refugee hospital, I met Mahmoud, who's the first person you meet in my memoir, Warrior Pose, burned all over his whole body uh, by napalm. Can't even be dressed. He's lying in a dress of gauze wrapped around his body, an 11, 12-year-old boy with a smile on his face, despite the pain that he was in. And he had told me that he walked out for 20, 21 days with no food. His family members, many were killed, and he found his way to this refugee camp. I felt so much compassion for these children. I met many others as well. I was living in Boston at the time, and when I went home and, and did the reports, I was able, so many people rose up and wanted to do something we were able to get hospitals that provided burns treatment and mm -hmm. eye surgery and prosthetic devices to, and the airlines to airlift a number of these children over to give them treatment. And that's the kind of journalism that I wanted to do. Journalism that makes a difference, that awakens us to the horrors and realities of war. 
but also gives us an opportunity to do something about it. Yeah, I, I wanted to just make the comment that despite the fact that you you describe in intricate detail your ambitious self, your type A self, I I will not let go of this career and I will reach the top of it. And 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 there's that sort of veneer on it, you know, Baba Ram. But what differentiated you even at that time, in my opinion, having worked in television extensively, and in Boston too, actually, is that there was a compassion and a sorrow that came through your reporting even then. And that it wasn't just a case of you being out there and doing your three minutes and then, you know, going and have a, a great meal in a fantastic, you know, hotel somewhere close. You were moved and transformed by this just indescribably bad shit that you came across in, in every continent. I, I remember the stuff in Bolivia with the cocaine <clears throat> children living in holes in filth mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the stuff in North Korea that you saw and Afghanistan and Iran and so forth. But my opinion when I was reading the book was that you were already kind of on the path. But it, it, there were two, there were, it was the kind of a warring thing going on within you. But you were already, you know, you were kind-hearted and you felt for these very, very afflicted human beings who were being destroyed by ridiculous wars and lies and, and extremely sleazy governmental policies. So could you comment about that, that, you know, there was already a compassionate, kind, karmic trajectory going on, even though you were doing that other thing. Yeah, that, yeah your identity then is a little bit more complex, really, right? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's a beautiful articulation, and that truly is how I felt. <clears throat> and again, I think that was born of the 60s. You know, when I saw my country enter a war in Vietnam based on a false Gulf of Tonkin incident and <clears throat> so many innocent villagers getting killed or maimed or deformed by Agent Orange and the profiteering of the military-industrial complex in that war. When I marched in war protests, and we all remember Kent State, and we even know the people who opposed the war, some of them were killed. I remember losing Dr. Martin Luther King. I remember losing the Kennedys. I remember how deeply that touched me in a place that was a constant tenderness in my life, as well as a source of anger and outrage. Because if we're not supporting and lifting one another up, we're tearing ourselves down. And awakening to the horrors of war and the horrors of violence and conflict and this idea that we are different and someone's better than another is so important. So I always felt that in my soul. And then I got a voice for it as a journalist. So that's what I really latched onto. And that was part of my nature. And then I think going through this life crisis, uh, I came deeper into the soul. I found that all of that had the elements of, of spirituality in it. But I had never considered myself a spiritual being, and I had never grown up in any sort of organized religion or in, in a spiritual context. And I think the movement in the 60s had that element, but, you know, we also got lost in, in drugs and love-ins and some things that were deleterious in our own way of escaping the pain of living in a culture that we felt disenfranchised from. But I've always felt that in my heart, and this science of yoga 
has given me a pathway to embrace that on an even deeper level. And I know that I've never arrived. I know that I don't think that I'm some guru now or some sage, that this is a journey. Every day I get up before sunrise and do my practice, still devoted. That's why I changed my name to Bhava Ram from Brad Willis to remind myself that I'm not going back to a different life. Every day, I, I ritualistically in my practice, I hold my ego in my hands and I offer it up to my sense of higher power. And I say, let me be humble today. Let me see the best in everyone. Let me think, how can I serve rather than what's in it for me? And I'll confess to both of you right now, some days I do really well with that and some days not so well. Oh, we uh, are. We, we, we are doing, we're masters at that. Oh, you know, every day, yes, is just perfect. You should see us in action on the day-to-day, Baba Ram. The minute, the minute we think we are arrived, we are in deep trouble. Yes, deep, deep. By the way, what you're saying, you know, it reminds me of, of, of I've been working on uh, something with a very old mentor uh, from India. And I think I mentioned when we first spoke, uh, I, I was in India, and that's where I met uh, Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas's right. guru, my guru. And... Uh, so what became very important for us is the Ramayana, which is the, one of the most important uh, Hindu, especially devotional texts in India. And uh, so we were, we're, we're preparing something, and this is, has to do with Ramdas.org, which is my day job, kinda, mm-hmm. uh, around the essential meaning and uh, thrust of the Ramayana. And of course... The biggest one and the most central one is what Hanuman represents, which is the right devotion and service. And what you were saying with your little morning ritual, well, when Hanuman came back from Lanka after wiping out the demons and finding out where Ram's wife Sita was, he came back to report. And Ram said to him, boy, no one's ever done the kind of service that you have done for me. There's no way for me to repay you. Not in any of, in any universe, whatever it is, I don't, whatever you want, ask for, right? You can have anything. God is talking. So what does he ask for? He throws himself at his feet, at Ram's feet, and says, save me, save me from the tentacles of egoism. Yes, isn't it so true? And I'd like to offer that we are all Ram, we are all Hanuman, and we are all Ravana, that demon who captured Sita. And I believe that's what these beautiful epics are about. It's You both know better than I do that guru means dark light. It's always a journey from the darkness to the light. And through devotion, we overcome Ravana. We overcome our ego and those demons that we face. Through standing in yoga like Ram, who's also the sun and the light of our heart, we anchor into something inside of us which is powerful and moves us towards the light. And I believe that's the journey. And I believe every great spiritual epic tells that same story in a different way. I yep. think that's the story of Arjuna and Krishna on the battlefield of Kurkestra. Yep. The same story. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, Ravaram, that there are some ironies. Like, for instance, you got injured in the Bahamas in a lovely vacation spot instead of being shot in 
Kabul or something. But I, I found another wonderful irony. It was a story you told to Morgan, your child, which is a story about uh, a bunch of kids who get uh, sort of abducted by a monster. <laughs> and you made up this story, you know, I, I, I assume extemporaneously. We're all fathers here, and that's what happens when you're telling your children stories. You have to make them up. Yes, and yes. the interesting thing was that when I read it was that eventually it isn't a normal thing of like the bad and the good and the monster gets destroyed. No, uh, you send a, a child and, and, and basically you tell the monster, well, you've got no friends. Why have you got no friends? And you realize the monster is, is yearning also. And yeah. once you tell him that you're all friends with him, he becomes a kind of a, a, a shuttle for the kids and they ride on him. And they love him, and he loves them, and it ends wonderfully. And it reminded me, and Raga and I did a, a, a podcast with a marvelous woman called Sultram Alioni, Lama Sultram Alioni, who's an old friend of ours. And she wrote a book called Feeding Your Demons. Mm -hmm. And when I read the story you told to Little Morgan, it was as if it had been encapsulated in this little story where you fed that demon for your child, an act of great generosity. And I know, having told stories to my daughters, that you know when they're captivated, not captured. Right. And you did that. And I must say that when I read that in the middle of the book, I just teared up a little bit because it was so beautiful. And it's a shame that all children aren't given these analogies, these stories that tell them, let's stop the us and them thing. Let's stop the bad and good thing. And let's try and embrace the darkness as best we can. Right. Because it's not going to change because we want it to change. No. And you did this many times, and, and, and the saddest part of the book, to be honest, was when your friend Richard, uh, who you got slightly tight with at the pain center, but he couldn't do it. And he told you he couldn't do it mm -hmm. in the most graphic terms and sort of put up his hand, like, talk to my hand. You can't talk to me. I'm not interested in all this, all this crap you're telling me about yoga and stuff. And he died. Mm -hmm. And I was so struck by that that we all have these exquisite choices. Right. And somehow or other, if you could just relate to that for a minute with me, because it's something that I'm a bit obsessed with, is why some of us are fortunate in being able to, at a moment of great doubt and pain, turn it around, mm -hmm. and others just can't. What is your reflection on that? Well, several things. You know, I learned when I was in my healing journey, when I was in my yoga room, which I called my Himalayan cave, although it was more nicely appointed than a Himalayan cave. <laughs> um, I had been so angry. Uh, I had been so angry, David, about cancer. I had been so angry about losing my career and so angry about a broken back. And I started to thank them. I started to thank the back pain and the broken back. I started to visualize that I was throwing my arms around the cancer in my body and giving it a sloppy kiss on the face and saying, thanks for helping me wake up. And it was when I made that shift from aversion to embracing that things began to change for me, that, that I became the one that had the pain rather than the pain having me. And I was able to cope with it and heal myself better. And the other thing that I had was I had this little boy who cracked me open. So I had something larger than my own individuated ego self-identified persona to live for and to act for. I don't think Richard had that. He'd, I, 
I really loved Richard in the short time that we were together, and he, he took his own life. He had been a very successful and wealthy executive. He had a family. He had gotten drunk so many times that all of that was gone. They were never coming back. He didn't even know where they were. He could not find something to live for. Uh, he wasn't a spiritual being, so he couldn't embrace a sense of higher power or humanity or oneness to live for. So Richard couldn't find in his own mind a new mission in life or, again, something larger than himself. Although, had we had time to spend more time together, and had I already gone through my healing journey and been seeing him as a client, as I see clients now, I think we could have found that for Richard. I think we could have found what inspired him that was larger than his individuated self. And I think that's what needs to happen. And we don't live, we live in a very secular culture that's, that has a very distracted and, and fragmented mind. And we don't really have a teaching about unity and oneness in these Eastern philosophies and a reason bigger than ourselves to live oftentimes. So I think for some people, they just can't find it because they don't know where it is. And it's tucked away somewhere in the darkest regions of the cave of their life. And they have no light to shine into those crevices to find that. Mm. Yeah, you were given your son who represented love and yes. that love you were able to grab onto and that broke down ignorance pride suffering sorrow it uh, your broke down that identity that you right. after losing everything just uh, you would have given up so that brings us to the little idea of karma and i'll tell you a silly story okay I, uh, we had a nice storm here, okay, yesterday. So I just went out. This has happened maybe well, three or four hours ago. I went out. I have, as you probably have heard, we've got some dogs here. And one of them, Puppy, was out. And uh, there was also a snowstorm today. We've been having some shit weather, Baba Ram. Yeah, where are you? Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so anyhow, I walked out. Uh, and because snow had covered the ice, I couldn't see it. And I completely lost my footing and just took off where I, I it's never happened to me before hmm. where I, you know, usually you fall, you can land on something, you can get some, you know, your elbow. And then of course you get in trouble that way. I landed on my back completely on my upper back, hard on the ice from a few feet, right? And my first thought was, shit, this happened to Bavaram. <laughs> and I had no idea if I was hurt. Because, right. you know, in the first moment, it's a shock, right? right. And then I, I said, okay, I'm just going to try and get up. Okay. And I got up. And, you know, I, I'm a bit sore. I took a couple of Advils. And I'm, you know, I'm okay. I could easily have that path of suffering and bodily um, you know operations back you know some crack something god knows anything could have happened in that moment but that wasn't my moment uh and your moment which is so powerful 
you know, falling off that ladder. What would have happened had you not fallen off that ladder? <laughs> right? You would have gone to the uh, highest echelons of NBC. We might be seeing you where Brian Williams <laughs> is now not. <laughs> or you might be uh, remembering the news reports that in the next war zone, Bob Aram was taken captive and right. tortured to death and executed. Yeah. Right. Um, so we never know, and it is a, it's a funny business. It's like the old story of the person who throws an, a raging fit because they're bumped off the flight, only to learn later that that flight didn't make it to its destination. Um, and we never know how it's going to turn out. I, I can spend years in, on my healing journey and overcoming a broken back and a failed surgery and stage four cancer and walk out the door and be hit by a truck. <laughs> right. We just don't know when it's our time. That's why I think the, the deeper science and the spiritual practice of yoga invites us to live every day connected to our sense of higher power, to live every day asking, how can I show up the best of me? How can I show up more like Ram and Hanuman than Ravana? What can I give? How can I serve? Because I think ultimately it's not our longevity that's important, but it's the, the quality hmm. of human being that we become. And this work through yoga is a journey towards just being the best that you can. So, by the way, Ravana, you know, Ravana made a deal with the head of the gods, right? And said, okay, I'm... I'm going to have all this power, but ultimately uh, the deal was he would be killed by God so that he would immediately become one. Right. Okay, so Ravana was no dummy about what was going no. on there. He played his part, but there was something else going on, which is the lovely part of the the complexity of the storytelling in, uh, of, right. uh, of, uh, of India. Uh, it's just uh, wonderful. And so. And we all do meet our maker, don't we? Yeah. No. But, I mean, in terms of talking about karma and what happened to you and that this, the way that your life was turned around, I also uh, I equate it with, you know, Dave and I have, um, we've talked about our pishock suffering that we had when we were young and God, privileged. He grew up in England. I grew up in Canada. We're like foreigners who came and made it here in America, you know, the immigrants who are successful and uh, now we're part of the fabric of America. Um, and so, but something happened where we bumped into, uh, and then we talk about psychedelics were a big part of it back in the 60s, so that was something that helped uh, kind of propel us, at least reveal to us that there was something else. There really is... Yeah. <laughs> and then we were fortunate, and in my case in particular, to actually get to India and meet a representative, if you want to call it, of that energy that we are talking about now. Right. Um, and I needed to get hit over the head. You fell off a ladder onto your back. I, I take it as I got hit over the head with a baseball bat to just blow away this idea that I knew anything and that I was these uh, constituent senses and mind. Okay, that was... So I do believe that uh, 
But we all have that grace possibility. I think that's really what grace is. And do you th- do you think of your life in in terms of uh, in any way that there is a, an entity or a representative? And obviously, uh, guru is a shit term because guru is so overused here in the West. But is there a something, an individuated representative of that which is beyond duality? We can put it that way, okay? Uh, What's your take on that relative to your own life experience and what happened to you? Well, I think there are are certain people, and um, I've met some great sages in India when I have taught there as well, who so embodied this, that just being in their presence and silence, you you were transformed. And I think that that, that does exist, and it's important to, to have that experience. And many of our students have had that experience, too, with uh, our Swamiji at Paramatma Nikodhan Ashram in Rishikesh. But I ultimately, you know, really believe that there is a great guru a fantastic guru for everybody, and that that guru is inside of you. That we all have, I'd like to say, all the great sages and saints that ever were, were just you in a different body, in a different time. And that this phenomenal intelligence that was downloaded by the great sages who gave us the Vedas thousands and thousands of years ago, I don't believe they downloaded it from some externalized cosmic source. I believe they downloaded it from the cosmic source within themselves. I believe that there is this phenomenal intelligence and wisdom and guru within each and every one of us from which we have largely been disenfranchised because we don't have a conversation with it. Because we are we live in an overstimulated culture and, and we're distracted. And I believe when you take the time to go deeply inside of yourself, this wisdom starts to whisper to you, like Neem Karoli Baba is sitting in lotus in your heart center, and he's whispering to you, Raghu or David, this is the path. Because don't we all have this profound inner knowing when we take the time to listen, when we become concentrated? And to me, I think that's where the, the inspiration lies. And you know, I found that inside of myself. And as I've confessed openly to both of you, I still struggle with my ego and with my externalized distractions. But I, I, know it's, I know it's there. And I know that that's a sacred place. And the more that I go there, not feeling like I have some greatness in me, but going there bowing, in supplication and humility, uh, going there, being Hanuman in complete devotion to the spirit of life that dwells inside each and every one of us. That's where I find my inspiration. Yes, that's beautiful. I think that it's also necessary to have guides. And when I was reading your book, I was envisaging what it would, what I, what I would be doing if I had a carcinoma like you had, the word cancer is just freaky beyond any other word in our culture except maybe genocide. Yeah. And when I'm reading what your, you know, your anger and all the stages you went through, I found that very inspirational, no kidding, because I have two 
extremely close members of my family right now who've just contracted cancer. And um, I'm going to aim this this podcast at them and I'm also going to aim your book at them because it's one thing, as Raghu said, you know, to get over trivial neuroses <laughs> and say, well, you know, I'm not making enough money, so I'll become a, a, a kirtan singer or, I, you know, I, or whatever, you know, or I'm, I'm just distracted and anxious about things. You know, I don't like the siding that they put on the side of my house. It makes me angry. And then get over that. It's another thing to meet someone who had cancer and a broken fucking back, <laughs> who was able to just transcend that. To me, my life has been ameliorated by quite a few of these catalysts, human beings, who have shown enormous get-to-itness. And just, I'm not going to let this defeat me. And, and I, also, I don't want that to be a, a recommendation of courage in invert, you know, inverted commas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about realization and then feeding off someone else's realization. Ramdas's story is fierce grace. Yours is equal fierce grace. A broken back and throat cancer is not a joke. And therefore, what I got out of it, really honestly, sincerely, not just for this podcast, but really truly, particularly last night when I was reading the end of the book. Well, if you can get over that, despite all the ups and downs and rage and so forth that you went through, um, then I can get through this, whatever I'm going through, because it's relatively nothing. And that is the kind of guidance that I personally find extremely valuable. We're not all, don't all have access to gurus. Right. And for those of us that didn't or don't, we need signposts along the way from people who've really traveled that way. And for that, I thank you. And for people who need some of that, and I don't want this to sound just like a promo, but it is, read this book, Warrior Pro. Promo. Read it. It'll help. We get letters from people all the time who are in various forms of extremists, in extremists, who don't know what the hell to do. Yeah, we should say, we haven't, uh, although you've mentioned it, Babaram, but it's Warrior Pro Pose, a war correspondence memoir. And uh, how yoga literally saved my life. Babaram, also known as Brad Willis, which was his former lifetime name. And uh, and by the way, uh, Babaram, you 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 refer to yoga quite often, and I, I guess I want to sort of make it a little bit uh, clear that yoga means to to yoke. Everybody knows that. That's not the thing. So when we're talking about certainly, uh, and I'm saying this on your behalf, Babaram, so you, you might want to correct me, but certainly the yoga, the actual, those uh, asanas that you found and that you continue to practice on your own, for the most part, although you did go to yoga classes with different teachers in the beginning, um, they specifically uh, healed that back. And I think there's no doubt about that. At the same time, the whole yogic, uh, uh, I think you talk about Ashtanga, you know, but all of the different yogic method, met, methodologies were taken in by you and practiced on many different levels. You were not just doing yoga postures. So when, when Babaram talks about yoga 
And it's like what we want. David and I talk about this a lot because yoga is on every street corner like uh, Starbucks. Actually, there's more yoga than Starbucks these days, I hear. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, so, and, and, and not to say even going in there to just get more beautiful, meet somebody, none of that's bad either. And we may josh people about it or more like jive. Uh, but because uh, we've known people who've gone in, they've that we said this kind of bullshit on our on our podcast when somebody wrote in. I'll tell you something. I went to one and I had no idea what it was about, and I was just thinking I would get a little bit of exercise, and then I heard a chant and bang, my whole life changed. So the, you know, it's again karma, and yeah. good samskaras lead you to the right place, and then as as you did, follow that immediately. So, but. We're talking about the encompassing idea of uh, philosophy of yoga. I would just add that it wasn't just the postures. It wasn't just, excuse me, I'm sorry about that. It wasn't just the postures that healed my back. It was the affirmations, the relaxation, the breath work, oxygenating my body, reducing emotional stress, cultivating an inner alchemy of oxytocin and dopamine and epinephrine through these practices of moving from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system. The Western new terminology for this, I was just teaching this with Deepak Chopra here two weeks ago, is self-directed biological transformation. We now know that self-directed biological transformation is possible, that we can change ourselves down to the levels of our genomes. And it's basically based on the eight limbs of yoga, the ashtanga that you just mentioned. This whole process is right thinking, right breathing, right movement, right attitude, right lifestyle, all these processes that work together synergistically and conspire us to bring us into yoga from this journey from the ego and the self-individuated self to the deeper wisdom in our heart to our inner guru and along the way through natural diet, better thinking, better lifestyle, better movement and breathing, we create the capacity of this remarkable organism we inhabit to heal and to achieve homeostasis, mm. and to achieve through that homeostasis, self-realization. Well, mm. you are living proof, Babaram, of the actualization, actualization of that. So, like, everyone will be stumped and stopped in their tracks when they have any kind of cynical bullshit go on in their mind about the possibilities of transformation uh, through um, completely changing your life. And unfortunately, uh, changing your life and, and doing the kinds of things that, uh, that Baba Ram is talking about, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but we, we do have to, uh, we are being pushed by suffering to open up anything. And in fact, uh, and this is something that, you know, we do these retreats out in Maui and we talk about suffering quite a bit. Uh, we work with some of the Buddhists, Jack Cornfield and so on. Uh, as many of our listeners already know. And uh, in the last, uh, and Dave edits together these beautiful movies, teaching films around compassion and adversity, he just did, uh, and truth. And, uh, and in another one, which was around intuitive faith, that's a whole other topic, 
about faith because that had to be part of your journey as well. There's no way that you could have continued on without uh, a even the tiniest little thing. We're not. It's not quantitative. It's qualitative, and and that had to be there. There and Ramdas uh, opens up this one particular thing, film going. I love suffering. It brings me closer to God. Absolutely. <laughs> it is so true. And it's the way that we wake up and suffering oftentimes turns out to be a blessing if we yeah. seize that opportunity. Let's do a retreat together in Maui someday. Yes, absolutely. Send absolutely. me some of your videos. Dave will put them out on our social network and share them with our people. And, and you know, we have a new foundation this year called Warriors for Healing. We're bringing the science of self-directed biological transformation to veterans facing PTSD. Mm-hmm to help them heal, and even more importantly, to help their families heal, because it's usually the spouses and the children and the communities that suffer so much. Mm. Babaram, give your uh, URL, because people can go to to the site and interact in many different ways, including even getting with him as a student. uh, And, of course, the book links and all of that. Give us us that, Babaram. It's bavaram.com, and you spell bava, B-H as in Henry, A as in Apple, V as in Victor, A as in Apple, Ram, R-A-M, not R-O-M, bavaram.com, and I'd love to hear from anybody and to know how I can serve you, uh, because I don't see myself as a teacher, I see myself as a servant. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Uh, and, uh, and everybody out there, David and I, uh, spent some real time with the book and it's uh, it is a truly transformational story and as david said a little earlier how uh last night or whenever it was whenever he was uh he th- the book actually lent him a perspective from which he was you know able to see things more clearly and um and it was transformational. So uh, everybody, we highly recommend it. And we love meeting you, Babaram. Yes. Um, yes. And I'm, bow- I'm bowing in front of both of you and touching your feet. <laughs> I, honestly, thank you for the work that you do. I love you both, even though we've never met in person. Well, and I, look, I look forward to the day that we do. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Ram, Ram. Ram, Ram. Namaste. Please send me uh, the podcast. We'll share that, too. Okay, great.